Eternal Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the message that was delivered by Hosea. We thank you so much that our relationship with you is dependent on your mercy and your grace and not our own merit and our own goodness. We always fall so far short of what what we would desire, what you would desire, but you remain faithful even when we don't and when your people don't. We thank you for that and we ask that you would help us to learn the lessons of this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking at Hosea and I've entitled it Jesus Christ, Healer of the Backslider. And that's certainly the case with the book of Hosea. Um, I was originally thinking of doing Hosea and Obadiah, but I don't. I won't get to Obadiah. So I'm going. I think I'll combine Obadiah with um, maybe with uh, Lamentations when I do that. The name Hosea means salvation. The last king of the northern kingdom, Israel, bore that same name, but the standard practice of English translations has been to distinguish them by calling the prophet Hosea and the king Hosea. In the actual Hebrew, they are both spelled as Hosea. So I don't, I don't know why they do that, because they don't do it other, with other individuals. There's a, a prophet Zechariah and there's a king Zechariah, but they're spelled the same in English translations. I don't, I don't know why they do that with Hosea and Hosea. The facts, Hosea, the prophet, the son of Baering, wrote the book named after him. We read about that in verse 1. At God's uh, instruction, Hosea married a harlot named Gomer. Their marriage came to symbolize God's relationship with Israel, as Hosea was troubled by her constant infidelity. Hosea wrote the book during the reigns of several kings, of Israel and Judah, covering the years 755 to 715. He died in about 713 BC. Uh, the landmarks, the book of Hosea is a bittersweet journey to the nature of human infidelity. Hosea was called to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam and during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. So we've seen that uh, the name of that king, Jeroboam II, come up several times uh, with regard to Jonah and with regard to Amos. And now we see it come up with uh, regard to Hosea. His message was clear. God's people had rejected him, so they would be sent into exile and become wanderers in other nations. The itinerary, which is an outline of the book, in chapters 1 and 2 we read about a faithless wife. In chapter 3, which is a very short chapter by the way, we read about a future restoration. And in chapters 4 through 10 we read about a fickle nation a nation that pretended that it was righteous and was going through formal motions of being righteous, but it really wasn't living up to the standards that God had set. But in spite of all that, in, in chapters 11 through 14, we read about a faithful God. Uh, the gospel, how the book relates to the gospel. The message of Hosea is the message of the gospel. God has gone to the utmost links to offer us life in exchange for pain, suffering, and death. And by the way, there's a, a typo in your handout. I neglected to put the word life in there. So it, it says, he went, he, God has gone to the utmost links to offer us life in exchange. And I think it says an exchange on your handout. But it's anyway, anyway, it's offer us life in exchange for pain, suffering, and death. Just as Hosea was to be forgiving and willing to receive his adulterous and wandering wife, God will forgive and restore those 
who have drifted from him. So many people think that God wants to take away the joy out of life. But people who think that way have it backward. Sin is the root cause of the suffering in the world, not God's rules. Jesus came, to, came so that, in his own words, we may have life and we may have it more abundantly. Jesus died so that he could give us something we could never attain on our own, eternal life, life to the full. And that's the offer of the gospel, an overflowing life of love and grace here in this life and eternal life with God in the next. The book of Hosea shows the ugliness of a people abandoned to the consequences of their selfish desires. But their situation was temporary. Yes, God promised that he would punish Israel for the days of Baal, for the days of the Baals, worshiping false gods. But in the very next verses, he promised he would allure her and speak comfort to her. I will betroth you to me forever. Hosea's marriage was a model of redemption, revealing God's justice and kindness, his holiness, faithfulness, and deep abiding love. Hosea was born in the northern kingdom of Israel toward the end of the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, with Amos, last week we saw that Amos was actually born in the southern kingdom, Judah, but he was a, a prophet mainly sent to the, to the northern kingdom. But Hosea was, was born in the northern kingdom, and he was sent to prophesy to the northern kingdom. And he, was, he came on the scene towards the end of Jeroboam's reign. He grew up and ministered under the rule of several other kings of Israel, Zechariah, Shalom, Menachem, Pekah, Pekahiah, and Hosea. Jeroboam's rule was one of political and economic prosperity. So things seemed to be going great for the country under Jeroboam's reign. But the underlying spiritual decay in the nation eventually became manifested during the reigns of his successors. So as, as you will see later, things really begin to unravel after Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel. History. These kings brought with them political unrest and spiritual chaos, these kings that, that followed Jeroboam, culminating in the Assyrian captivity of Israel in 722 BC. Many Jews turned to the idolatry and other practices of the Assyrian religion, further rebelling against God. Hosea ministered and prophesied to the people around the same time as the prophets Amos and Jonah, that we've covered before this. This was some 250 years after the time of David and Solomon, and about 650 years after the 12 tribes of Israel first entered the Promised Land. At this point in his history, civil war had divided God's covenant people into two nations. So Israel was split into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, so there were 10 northern tribes in the, in the northern kingdom, and the other tribes became the southern kingdom of Judah. Travel tips, things that we can learn from the book. This is very important about Israel's relationship with God and also with our relationship with God. Your relationship with God center, enters, centers on his faithfulness, not yours. And isn't that a good thing? That it doesn't depend on us. He guides and disciplines you as a father does a child. But he loves you sacrificially, the way a husband should love his wife. The only appropriate response to such a, a loving, caring God is to fear him, having a healthy respect and awe for him, and to love him by doing what he says. I reference John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. The other thing, sin is sin is sin. Hosea didn't hesitate to call sin what it was, calling out Israel for its disobedience and rebellion. Because he first proclaimed this hard truth, 
His words of encouragement resonated even more later on. After all, truth begets truth. And that's what we know about sharing the gospel. Is you, it doesn't do any good to give the good news unless until people really understand what the bad news is. That they are sinners. That they are headed for damnation. And then they can appreciate what God has done for us. I will heal their backsliding, God said, of the people of Israel. I will love them freely. When we confess and repent of our sins, turning our hearts back to God, then he can begin to heal and bless us. Gomer, the unfaithful wife. We don't get very far into the book of Hosea when we encounter Gomer, the unfaithful wife. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. That's what the new RSV says. Uh, the NASB puts it this way, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. The NIV puts it this way, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. So the NIV puts a little different nuance on it. The ESV uh, goes back to the wording of the RSV, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity. So the Holman Christian Standard Bible goes back to the NIV wording. And then the Lexham English Bible says, go take for yourself a wife and children of whoredom. So it puts it this way. Now this is, this is mainly an age thing, but uh, those of us above a certain age Well, not, not to be mentioned. Um, let's put it this way. If you were alive in the 60s and you were old enough to know what was going on. Well, in, in the 60s, there was a television series. And most of us can't see that name Gomer without thinking of Gomer Pyle, USMC. That's, that's the Gomer we think of. The, the Gomer Pyle show was a spin-off of the Andy, Andy Griffith show. And there were two expressions that, that Gomer was always using. One of them was golly, and the other, one, the other one was shazam. Well, this Gomer has absolutely nothing to do with the, the Gomer that we're looking at in Scripture. But some of us just can't avoid thinking about this Gomer. Several questions arise about Gomer, this unfaithful wife of Hosea. Was Gomer, the wife of Hosea, just symbolic, allegorical, visionary? Not a real person, just a, an illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness to God? Well, that's... That's one view. Was Gomer a prostitute before she married Hosea? Or was she an unfaithful after she married Hosea? And then there's another issue that arises. Is the Gomer that's mentioned in chapter 1, is she the same person as this woman who's mentioned in chapter 3? In chapter 3, the, the name Gomer isn't used, so it, some, some scholars think that they're two different people, that they're not the same person. So let's look at, this, at these issues. How do, we, how do we sort this out? The identification of Gomer has been a debated point from the earliest times. Even the ancient commentators in the early Christian period differed as to whether she was simply a, a parable to illustrate the alienation between 
disobedient Israel and her faithful God. It was argued that this could hardly have been a factual account, since it would be a disgrace for a man of Hosea's prophetic stature to marry a woman who was of ill repute. For that reason, Jerome, who lived in the 4th century, and Calvin, in the Protestant Reformation, from the time of the Reformation, felt that this uh, narrative was to be understood allegorically. In other words, they felt that Gomer couldn't be a real person. This was just an a illustration, an object lesson for, to teach people about Israel's unfaithfulness. On the other hand, Theodore of Matsuastia, and that's located in what is today Turkey. Uh, Theodore lived in the fifth century. In the, in the older period, uh, adhered to the literal interpretation that she was a woman whom Hosea actually married, whether she was immoral previous to the marriage or became so afterward. He wasn't certain about that, but he did think that she was a real woman. And these conflicting interpretations continue to this day. So even today, you can find scholars who think that this is allegorical, or this is a parable, and others who think that Gomer was a real person who was actually married to Hosea. One very strong objection to a more figurative type of interpretation is found in the fact that Hosea's marriage is given as a straightforward narrative. It just tells us the story. It doesn't, it doesn't say that it's a, it's a parable. It tells it factually, as if it were true. There is no evidence in the text itself that it was to be understood as a parable or purely fictional experience described in order to illustrate a theological teaching. So there's, there's really no indication in the text that this is just a story, a parable. If the transaction did not really take place, even though it is set forth in such a factual manner, then the possibility opens up of questioning the historicity of any number of other episodes which are narrated in scripture, as if they were sober history. So if this isn't a real event that actually happened, then how do we know that many of the other narrations in the Bible are just stories? So it does seem that this is a real person, a real event that actually did historically take place. A basic hermeneutical principle involved here is that the statements of scripture are to be interpreted in their plain and obvious sense unless other scripture bearing upon the same subject shows that these statements are to be interpreted in some other fashion. So unless we have good reason from the scriptures themselves to believe that a certain incident didn't really happen, it's just a fictional story, then we should accept it at face value. The phrase adulterous wife in verse two of chapter one, rather than describing Gomer's status at the time of her marriage to Hosea, more likely anticipates what Gomer would become, an unfaithful wife. The, the symbolism seems to demand this understanding of the phrase, just as Hosea's wife cheated on him and violated her marriage vows, so Israel broke her covenant with the Lord and committed spiritual adultery. Some argue that Gomer must have been pure at the time of the marriage for the symbolism to work properly. After all, Israel was pure at the time she entered into a covenant with the Lord. It was just later on that Israel departed from that covenant. A straightforward reading of the text leads most naturally to the conclusion that Hosea was ordered by God to marry a promiscuous woman in order to symbolize God's relationship to Israel. Thus it seems that God did not command Hosea to marry a prostitute, rather he married a woman whose inclinations would lead her to commit adultery against him later on. But we should, regardless of whether Gomer was a real person, regardless of whether she was unfaithful before or after um, the marriage, we should not lose sight of the clear teaching of this section. 
what it's really teaching us is that Hosea's marriage with Gomer, whether it was historical or symbolic or allegorical or visionary, that marriage is used by God to indicate both his disgust, his disgust with, and his love for his covenant people. He was disgusted with their behavior, but he still loved them dearly. Now, who were the children of unfaithfulness? And in what sense can they be labeled as such? If Gomer was a prostitute at the time of the marriage, they could be illegitimate children whom she brought into the marriage with her. However, it seems more likely that the children in view are the three mentioned in the following context. If so, the language of verse 2 must be proleptic. In other words, it anticipates Hosea's acquiring children through Gomer. So it's proleptic. They would be, in the future, children of unfaithfulness. In what sense are they children of unfaithfulness? The qualifying term unfaithfulness most, most likely refers to their mother, not the children themselves. The entire expression should be paraphrased. Children born to a mother of unfaithfulness. So that's how they were children of unfaithfulness. They were born to a mother of unfaithfulness. Does this mean they were not Hosea's? In the case of the first child, Jezreel, the text specifically indicates that Gomer bore him, that is, Hosea, a son. But the text does not specifically identify Hosea as the father of Lo-Rohama or Lo-Ami. So the text definitely does say that Hosea was the father of the first child, Jezreel, but the second and third child, Lo-Rohama and Lo-Ami, were not certain. For this reason, some argue that these two children were fathered by other men. Support for this view comes from chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which speaks of this own children conceived in disgrace, and 5 and 7, where Israel is accused of giving birth to illegitimate children. Though one can make a case for this, for this view, that the, the second and third children are not uh, Hosea's, it is not entirely convincing. The omission of any reference to Hosea in verse one, or chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, where we learn about the birth of these two children, it does not preclude his being the father of the second and third children. The statement in 2.5 reads, in the Hebrew text, the one who conceived them has acted disgracefully. So it, it says that she has acted disgracefully, the mother, but it doesn't say whether or not the children are Hosea's or somebody else's. This need not mean that she conceived them through a disgraceful, that is, adulterous act. They could very well be legitimate children, but their mother's disgraceful behavior called the children's legitimacy into question. So she had these children, but she was unfaithful, so it's not certain who the father was. It is probably best to respect the ambiguity of the text. Though the first child was Hosea's, Gomer's subsequent behavior cast a shadow over the second and third children. In the metaphorical application of the situation, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, this uncertainty prompts the father, the Lord in this case, to threaten to disown the children. So chapter 1 is where we read about this marriage between Gomer, or Hosea and Gomer and their children. And then chapter 2 applies that principle to the relationship of, between God and Israel. So let's look at the three children that were born to Hosea and Gomer. The first child is a son named Jezreel. And Jezreel means... It, it can be understood in several different ways. God will scatter, or God will sow, or God will plant. 
So you can see how there are some different nuances there with this name. And the, the, the beautiful thing about this word, Jezreel, is that it applies both to God destroying Israel, God will scatter, but it also can apply to God, the restoration of Israel, God will plant. So you can see how there's a, a positive and a negative connotation, connotation with the word. The second child was a daughter. Her name was Lo-Rohama, and that could mean unloved or not pitied or no mercy. There's not much, uh, not much wiggle room with that name. And the third child was another son, and his name was Lo-Ami, which means not my people. A little Hebrew lesson here. The word Am, A-M, means people. Ami means my people. Lo-Ami means not my people. So that low means no or not. So we learned something about the historical context, and, and I need to go into this a little bit before I can explain further to you the significance of the names, Jezreel and Lo Rahma and uh, Lo Ami. We read in, in verse 1 of, of Hosea that the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So it was late in the, in the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, that uh, Hosea began his prophecy. Hosea would have begun his ministry late in the reign of Jeroboam and finished his ministry early in the reign of Hezekiah. So from about 750 to 715 BC, what is that, about, about 35 years approximately, that his ministry was uh, extant. Verse 1 mentions four kings of Judah but makes no mention of the kings of Israel who came after Jeroboam, after Jeroboam II. Why is that? Why, do, why doesn't it mention the kings that, of Israel that came after Jeroboam? It just mentions the, the kings of Judah that were reigning at this time. Jeroboam's reign, as I mentioned before, was a time of expansion, a time of prosperity. Everything seemed to be going great. But after his death, the political situation in the northern kingdom rapidly unraveled. The six kings that followed Jeroboam in Israel, six kings were toppled in 30 years, three of whom ruled two years or less, four of whom were assassinated, while a fifth was deposed. So it was a time of great turmoil. And another thing that was happening at the same time was that Assyria was rapidly growing in power. It was rapidly becoming the regional superpower. So here's the, the dynasties that were ruling in Israel, in the northern kingdom. See, there was only one dynasty in Judah all through the kings of Judah. There's just one dynasty, the dynasty of David. But in the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the dynasties changed quite often. So first, first of all, we're not going clear back to the beginning, but we're just going back to, well, actually the time of Elijah and Elisha. So the king Omri came to power, and he began a dynasty. So then his son became king. This was Ahab, the infamous Ahab, who was married to uh, Isabel. And then after Ahab was his son Ahaziah, and then his son Joram. But Joram was killed by Jehu. And then Jehu became king, and he began a different dynasty. 
his son, he reigned as king, and then after him, it was his son Jehoahaz, and then his son Joash, also known as Jehoash. That's one of the things that can be confusing about the, the kings of Israel and Judah. Sometimes they're known by two different names. And sometimes there are kings in Israel who have the same name as a king in Judah and so forth. But then the, the one that we're really concerned about in Hosea, Jeroboam II, the next king in that dynasty. Because it was late in his reign that Hosea began to prophesy. But as I said, after Jeroboam died, then things began to fall apart very quickly. His son, Zechariah, reigned only six months. And then he was killed by Shalom. So Shalom became king, and he started another dynasty. But he only reigned one month, and then he was killed by Menachem. So Menachem became king, and he started another dynasty. And at least he had a, a son who ruled after him, Pekahiah. But Pekahiah was killed by Pekah. So Pekah became king, and then he started another dynasty, but he was killed by Hosea. <laughs> and then Hosea became king. And as I mentioned, Hosea, who has the same name as the prophet, that we call Hosea, but it's really Hosea, uh, he was the last king of Israel before Israel was taken into captivity in his reign in 722 B.C. So that's the historical setting in which we're dealing in, in the book of Hosea. So it's, it's that... Uh, King Jeroboam, during his, late in his reign, that's when Hosea begins to prophesy. And he prophesied that this dynasty of Jehu would come to an end. And shortly after he prophesied that, then things really start falling apart. So now back to the, back to the children of Hosea and Gomer. As instructed by the Lord, Hosea gave the name Jezreel to the son born to him and Gomer. The name was an omen of the demise of the Israelite royal dynasty. It would end in violence, just as it had risen to power several decades before through a violent coup at Jezreel. So there's a a ridge in Israel called the, the Carmel Ridge. And on that ridge, there's Mount Carmel, which is where Elijah had his famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it's also in that ridge that there is Megiddo. That, that's a, an important pass through that ridge. But then on the north side of that ridge, there's the Valley of Jezreel. And then there's also a city in that valley called Jezreel. And so the, the uh, dynasty of Jehu had come to power uh, at Jezreel through violence, a violent coup. And now Hosea is prophesying that the dynasty of Jehu will in turn be destroyed. In 841, Jehu, at the instigation of the Lord and his prophets, overthrew the Omri dynasty. We call it the Omri dynasty because it was started by Omri, which had ruled Israel since 885 B.C. So the dynasty of Jehu came next, and that was the dynasty in which Jeroboam II was king. Jehu assassinated King Ahab's successor, Joram. He killed the queen mother, Jezebel, and wiped out Ahab's descendants. So he made a, a clean sweep. Jehu assassinated Jehu outside the walls of this town called Jezreel, 
by shooting an arrow through his heart. He rode into Jezreel, the city of Jezreel, and he commanded the palace servants to throw Jezebel out the window to the street below, where her body smashed against the pavement, was trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. Jehu then sent a letter to the royal officials at Samaria, which was the capital, or one of the capitals of, of Israel, ordering, ordering them to execute Ahab's sons and send their heads to Jezreel. When the order was carried out, the heads which arrived in baskets were placed in two piles at uh, Jezreel's city gate. So you can see that these uh, officials went along with the orders of Jehu because they recognized that he was a rising star. He was the new power in Israel. So they weren't going to remain loyal to Jezebel or to the sons of, of Ahab. Jehu's coup was a violent, bloody affair. But now, ironically, the violence and bloodshed that stained the streets of Jezreel would be repeated with Jehu's dynasty. This time, Jehu's dynasty would be the victim. The prophecy was fulfilled in 752 BC when Shalom assassinated Zechariah, the fourth of Jehu's descendants, to rule on his throne. Hosea had, had prophesied this, that the dynasty of Jehu would end also. The name Jezreel would also serve as a portent of the demise of Israel's armies, which would suffer a crushing defeat in the valley of Jezreel. This prophecy was fulfilled in 733 BC, when the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III defeated an Aramean-Israelite uh, alliance. So Aramean refers to Syria, Damascus. They were allied with, with the northern kingdom of Israel to fight against the Assyrians. But the Assyrians were victorious. They executed King Rezin of Damascus and made Syria into a Syrian province. See, at the, at the time of Jeroboam II, he expanded Israel's influence over, over Syria, over Damascus. But now the Assyrians come and take that away. In Israel, Hosea, Hosea assassinated King Pekah and became an Assyrian puppet king. So he took over and he was just a puppet of Assyria. Israel's territory was greatly reduced. It had expanded in the time of Jeroboam II, but now it was reduced as the northern regions of the nation became Assyrian provinces. So the uh, Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, and the, the region of Galilee, that all became came under control of Assyria. It is likely that military operations occurred in the Valley of Jezreel during this campaign. So that name that was given to Hosea's son, Jezreel, was, was very significant. The Lord instructed Hosea to name Gomer's second child, a daughter, Lo-Ruhamah, which means unloved. This name foreshadowed the Lord's rejection of Israel, which is portrayed in more vivid detail in the next chapter, chapter 2. So Israel had rejected the Lord's influence over them, so the Lord had rejected Israel. Although the Lord would withhold his compassion from the northern kingdom, he would continue to extend his favor to Judah. He would personally intervene and supernaturally deliver Judah from its enemies without the use of weapons or chariots. The promise of Judah's preservation anticipates the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem in 701 BC. Remember the story of how the Assyrians came against Jerusalem and things were looking pretty bleak, but then God miraculously, supernaturally killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. 
So they decided to go back home after that. It's kind of interesting to read the accounts of the Assyrians because they're filled with propaganda. They, they don't admit that they were beaten. By divine command, God, Gomer's third child was named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. Like Lo-Ruhamah, this boy's name foreshadowed the Lord's rejection of Israel. In a tragic reversal of the covenantal ideal, the Lord would sever his relationship with Israel and no longer be their God. So if we go back to the Torah, the time of Moses, we read in Exodus 6, 7, for example, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And also in Leviticus 26, 12, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But now God is reversing that. The covenant was established with Israel, but now Israel has abandoned God, and so God is abandoning, abandoning his promises to Israel, but only temporarily. Though the Lord would reject Israel, the separation would not be final. Eventually, the Lord would restore his favor, and Israel would become the great nation envisioned in God's promise to Abraham. We can read about those promises back in Genesis, the promises that God made to Abraham. And eventually those promises would be restored, and God's favor would be restored. Those once called not my people would be renamed sons of the living God. That's what Hosea said. A God who defeats his people's enemies and gives them a land. The um, covenant theology people like to point to those verses about not my people, but they like to ignore the rest that that was only temporary. Israel would once again be God's people. Israel and Judah would reunite under one leader, the Davidic king. Of course, that hasn't happened yet, but that will happen when Jesus Christ returns and establishes the millennial kingdom. Rather than being a negative portent associated with a geographic site, the name Jezreel, which means, it can mean, God plants, it would take on a new significance. So remember how I said that name Jezreel could either mean God will scatter or God will plant. God scattered when he destroyed Israel, but he will plant Israel when he restores them. Reunited Israel and Judah would take, up, would take root and sprout up from the ground, as it were, for the Lord would reinstate them to their land and renew his blessings. Though God had once rejected Israel, the citizens of this, newly, of this new nation would be his people and would experience his love. This is a, this is a verse that's in Hosea that's easily, um, easily missed, the significance of, but in the in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about that he was buried, when Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, what scriptures talk about three days? Well, there is one in Hosea, in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. So it is, it is thought that that is a real reference to the, this concept of three days. The other scripture, of course, is the, the one we looked at a couple of weeks ago, or however many weeks ago that was, in 
in the uh, prophet Jonah. The other scripture is the account of Jonah's three days in the belly of the great fish. So there are scriptures that talk about the third day. Hosea in the New Testament. There aren't very many references to Hosea in the New Testament, but there are some few, a few, and they are significant. One is in Romans 9.25, where we read, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And then First Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So the same idea. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is the famous resurrection chapter. And Paul says this, and he's actually quoting from the prophet Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then probably the most famous quotation of Hosea is that in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's talking about Christ, the Christ child and his family taking their journey down into Egypt. And they didn't stay there very long. And so Matthew points out that this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So I didn't have time, uh, I didn't have space to put the, the entire uh, passage on your handout. So I just gave you that, that summary. But now we can look at the verses uh, in more detail. And, and when Paul quotes this passage from Hosea, he says, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. So the, remember the, the second child, the daughter of, of um, Gomer, was called unloved. But Paul says that this people will be called beloved. And First Peter is referring to that same, those same verses in Hosea. When it says, you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then that famous passage, that famous verse in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's quoting Hosea 13, 14. And then Matthew's reference to Hosea, and remained there in Egypt. This is talking about the, the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary and the Christ child. Remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod, Herod the Great. Um, that's one, one of the things that's sometimes confusing about the Gospels is the name Herod, because people have a tendency to think that there's just one Herod, but Remember that Herod the Great, who was the king when Christ was born, he died shortly after Christ was born. So the same Herod wasn't still ruling at the time of the crucifixion. That was a different Herod, a son of Herod the Great. But they're both in, in the gospel just called Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you, if you go back and read the verse in Hosea, Hosea 11.1, 1, and you read that verse in context, it's clear that in that context, in the Old Testament, it's talking, when it says, my son, it's talking about the people of Israel. But Matthew applies that in, in a new way to the uh, Israelite par excellence, Jesus Christ. And he applies that verse to Jesus. Israel was the son of God, and Jesus was the son of God in a much greater way. He succeeded where Israel had failed. And this is a very important concept 
throughout the Bible. The idea that the divine human covenant is mirrored by human marriage extends from Hosea through the other prophets, most notably Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and into the New Testament. The most explicit development of this theme from a Christian's perspective comes in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So um, I'll conclude by, by reading that entire passage in, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, which fully develops that concept of the marriage relationship, the human marriage relationship, picturing the relationship between God and his people. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the great picture that you have given us in human marriage of the relationship between you and your people, the relationship that you have had with Israel, the relationship that you have with the church. We thank you for these blessings of the pictures that you have given us and for the understanding that you have given us of what this picture is. We ask that you will help us to perfectly portray and, and illustrate to the world the wonderful love that you have for your church and for Israel. We ask that you will help us understand these things and to fully illustrate them to the world around us as we tell them about the wonderful blessing it is to serve you, to know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.